3. If you would please stand for the reading of Christ's word. Be reading verses 1 through 6 this morning. May you hear the word of Christ. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose. Let us pray. Father, you've gathered us this morning as your people. So now open our ears and our hearts and our minds, all of who we are, to receive your word. We've probably come with doubts, which is good. May you, may you speak faith into our lives. We've probably come with mourning, which is okay. May you speak joy into our lives. And Father, we may have even come with so much brokenness. And that's all right too. May you give life. And may you mend us together through the preaching of your word and the teaching of your word this morning. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The focus this morning will be on verse 6, a time to seek and a time to lose, uh, and spending some time trying to figure out how to pull this entire message together as I've looked at that single verse, and as we've said week in and week out, uh, there is a time for these, these kinds of things, a time to seek and a time to lose. And we have to know the season that we're in in order to know what right action it is. Uh, but in many ways, I see these as actually um, two sides of the same coin, we could say. A time to seek and a time to lose. And in fact, we'll get to that in a minute, what Jesus has to say about both of those very terms. But... In looking at a possible message title, uh, this is the best that I could come up with because I think it reflects in a healthy way what Jesus will teach us from Luke 9 in a few minutes, and it's this, a cheap or costly grace, a time to seek and a time to lose. Those two terms, costly grace and cheap grace, uh, were first coined by uh, a famous figure in the 20th century by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, some might know that name, some might not. That's fine. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a very influential figure for the German church in the middle of Nazi Germany. So you have Adolf Hitler coming to power uh, in the 20s and 30s, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer had his eyes set on Adolf Hitler. And he understood that the types of power and influence that this man had as he continued to put his hands inside the churches, bringing in certain Catholic and Lutheran uh, influences. Uh, Adolf Hitler had many, many unhealthy patterns uh, to, to influence the German church. 
and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was frightened of the possibility of what Adolf Hitler could bring about the kind of death and the kind of oppression to Christians. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote pretty vehemently against Adolf Hitler, spoke very vehemently against Adolf Hitler. And what you find throughout each of his writings, and he's a masterful writer, he wrote tons of books, is that you have this man who understood the gospel of grace, and he knew that this was a right season for the gospel of costly grace. And so here he gives us these two terms in the middle of his situation in the 30s and 40s of costly grace and cheap grace. Because he saw that when Hitler was taking over the influence of the churches, he was essentially pouring into them a cheap grace. And what was required in that time and in that day was a costly grace. So I don't like reading lengthy passages, but this is what Bonhoeffer had to say about those two terms. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, and a system. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace but it because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. So what Bonhoeffer is trying to bring out is that he's not saying that doctrine isn't good. Teaching isn't good. The teaching of the scriptures. But if that's all it becomes, then it's cheap grace. It calls us to action. A following of Jesus and an understanding that the call to follow Jesus very well might be costly. And it was an incredible call for the German Christians in a time where they needed to understand that it was going to be a costly call because it ended up being that for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who would eventually be hung because of his speaking out against Adolf Hitler and many other German leaders in this time and day. So the aim this morning is to hear clearly the costly call to follow Jesus who is gracious and merciful to us. So then, let's, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn over now to Luke 9, verses 21 through 27, in which we will read a slightly longer passage as it relates to Jesus speaking to his disciples. Verses 21 through 27. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell them to, to tell no one about this saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all who were near him, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's look back at verse 23. Notice what Jesus says to each of those who are surrounding him. If anyone comes after me. Later on in Luke 12, he will add to this teaching to his disciples. He says this in Luke 12. And whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Which of you wishing to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see if he has the resources to complete it? What Jesus is bringing out in both of these passages that the call to Christ is a costly call. So we have to sit back and actually count the cost before we understand the calling to which he's calling us. You have to count the cost. What does that mean for anyone who hears that call of Christ? What does it mean for those people to actually hear the words of Jesus and think, okay, what is it that I'm going to gain and lose? Well, as he tells the one who wants to sit down and build his tower, well, you're going to have to figure out all the resources that you need before you start planning that decision. You need to actually think about everything that's going to involve before you start building the tower itself. It's no different from the call to discipleship, to actually mold yourself into the image of Christ and to follow after Him. Because look there in 20, verse 23 of Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You see those three? Deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. They're all essentially one and the same. To take up a cross was to deny yourself. As it relates to Jesus, taking up his cross is following Him and denying yourself first. This is no different from what John says in his gospel, may He be greater and I lesser. It's a denying of self, taking up cross, following Him. And if I could just paint a picture of what this kind of radical call would be in the first century Jerusalem who is continually hearing of Roman power, the crucifixion, the cross itself, was not one of those happy symbols that we tend to think of today. As a powerful symbol of life, they didn't see it as that. They saw it as a powerful symbol of death. Because it was nothing more than a few things, a torture device leading to death. In many instances, we have historical documents where Rome, as uh, you entered into Rome, they would send a signal to anybody entering into the city. They would have dozens and dozens and dozens of crosses lined up as you entered into Rome with 
figures hanging from these crosses telling you right then and there, you better be serious about how you act when you enter into Rome because it could be you on this cross. Rome understood well how to manipulate the mind and understand that they were in power and you were not. So these symbols of death were all over the place. The crucifixion of Jesus was certainly not the first time that anybody in Israel or uh, in the Roman world had ever seen a cross. It was always a symbol of death. People understood very well what a cross meant. So it was meant to, uh, of course, kill those and leading them towards death. It was a torture device meant to deter behavior. As you entered into Rome and you had the dozens of crosses lining the highway, it was meant to deter the way that you were going to act. It was right then and there. Are you sure you want to enter into this place? Lastly, it was a symbol of political power. Rome was the political force in the European world at that time. There was no doubt who was in power, and it was certainly Rome. Greece had once held that power, but Rome took over. They had all the resources available, the armies, the military power. They had the economic and financial power that existed all throughout the lands. They continued to go from country to country and taking all these resources of other countries and putting their stake in the ground and saying, now you are a citizen of Rome. So a crucifixion in the ancient Roman world was very much understood for early Israel. To know a cross was to know death. It was not to know life. It was to know death. So yet Jesus, with that in mind, is inviting these disciples around him in Luke 9 to take up crosses. I mean, can you imagine the mindset right then and there when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me? They would have thought he's crazy. Because you're just leading us into death and pain and torture. Why in the world would this Messiah figure who he claims to be invite us into death? So as one of my favorite writers puts it like this, the cross is not just a badge to identify us and the banner under which we march. It is also a compass that gives us our bearings in a disoriented world. Look at those three words. It is a badge. It is a banner under which we walk and a compass that gives us direction. What Jesus is teaching them right here in these verses that it will be these three things. Yeah, he doesn't mention a badge or a banner or a compass, but that's what he's after. If you take up your cross, what, every other day? Every other week? No, no, no. If you take up your cross every single day, you deny yourself, follow after me, you'll realize that you now identify yourself with me. This is your badge. Secondly, when you take up that cross, it is going to be the banner under which you walk. You've already identified yourself with me. Now you're going to march to my drumbeat because you're following after me. And thirdly, it's going to be the compass. 
the cross for the early Christians, and we know this very well if reading uh, just a, a quick reading of the New Testament, that it was the compass. They understood everything in light of the cross and the resurrection, but firstly the cross. So when we look at these verses, 22, 23, and 24, we realize that the nature of the cross greatly influenced how the early Christians understood their daily life, their weekly life, their work, their passions, how they interacted with people, because it was the nature of the cross itself that changed them. Because they didn't just see their Messiah die on it, but they saw their Messiah walk three days later when he should not have. Eating with them, teaching them, continuing to talk to them about the things of the kingdom. And yet, it becomes very difficult for them to understand in this time, what in the world are you calling us to, to take up a cross? Because once it comes to denying oneself, taking up cross daily and following, I think it's actually verse 22, the verse right before this, that helps us understand what that looks like on a daily basis. Verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed on the third day, and, and be killed and on the third day be raised. To suffer many things, to be rejected, to be killed, and third day be raised, we have to understand that this is Jesus receiving the will of the Father. As I told FCA uh, this past Friday, we dealt with the same passage. Notice it doesn't have them in the active. It's in the passive sense. He receives what? He receives the suffering. He receives the rejection. Be rejected. He receives the killing. Be killed. And he receives the resurrection. Be raised. Jesus understood very well that when he put himself as the son underneath the father's will, that all of these things would come about for the good. Even as much as that evil and brokenness of this cross had to bear on his life and on his ministry, there would be life beyond it. So it's an acceptance of God's perfect will in one's life. So if I can go back to our metaphors of cheap grace and costly grace, now that we've looked at these passages, let me give you some examples of what I see of cheap grace in American, uh, the American church today. First example of cheap grace would be the ticket to heaven, Jesus. Jesus is my ticket to heaven. That's it. That Jesus offers us eternal life and now I wait for him to give me that, I give him that ticket back that he's given me. I'll get to that in a minute about what that means as costly grace as opposed to cheap grace. What about a good moral teacher, Jesus? I've seen this plenty of times where I've talked to people about uh, who Jesus is and how the scriptures identify Jesus. They say, well, he's just a great moral teacher. Yeah, he's a really great moral teacher, but he's more than that. I mean, the fact that here in verse 22, he says, the son of man, 
we jump over phrases like that too quickly today, but the Son of Man would have been him identifying himself as none other than a Davidic king, a king after the reign of David. But it would also have been some sort of divine term that he would have understood himself as a divine yet human figure. So he can't be just a good moral teacher because the scriptures reveal something far more beyond that. We're a tolerant Jesus. What I have in mind here as it relates to cheap grace is that Jesus just tolerates all my actions. He looks over them and he doesn't call me to any sort of action with my brokenness and sin. He just looks over them. Here's another uh, example of cheap grace in our culture. Health and wealth, Jesus. If you give me money, Jesus will make you healthier and wealthier. That's a prime one in our culture today. If you just do this, Jesus will bless you in this way. That also is an example of cheap grace. Now, let me see if I can counter those with costly grace examples. As we look at verse 22, Jesus says, I will suffer many things. And he accepts the suffering that the Father is about to put him through. There must be some greater good that he's going to bring, out, bring about through this suffering. As uh, the president of the, the graduate school that I'm at, he says this quote, and I love this quote as it relates to suffering. The will of God might not, what is it? The will of God might be the best place to be, but it's not always the safest place to be. It might be the best place to be, but not always the safest place to be. What he means by that is that we are known as a missionary school where hundreds of my friends accept the call to go to other nations all over the globe to preach about Jesus, to live out the life of Jesus. And they're going to actually experience suffering. Death. I've had friends of friends who've died proclaiming the name of Jesus. Physical death. Knowing that the suffering that they're about to go to and they're bringing their families. I mean, that call is a costly call. And don't think for a second that my friends haven't counted the cost. They certainly have. But they know that the best place to be is in the center of God's will, but not always the safest. Secondly, a rejection that we see here in verse 22 of chapter 9, that there's a rejection involved. Church, if you haven't experienced rejection because of the fact that you have uh, put yourself in union with Christ, I mean, it's going to happen if you haven't experienced it yet. Oh, you follow Jesus? Ah, you can't be a part of us. Oh, you follow Jesus? That's way too weird. I tell this to teenagers all the time, that the call to follow Jesus might be the most rejecting thing that you experience of your friends. But again, it's the best following that you can run after and chase after. The third thing that Jesus mentions in uh, this 22nd verse of chapter 9 is to be killed. Be killed. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who follows the call of Jesus will experience that death, that friends of friends of ours have experienced that type of death. 
But if we understand the word itself of being a witness for Jesus, we use that word all the, all the time, right? I'll be a witness for Jesus. When the New Testament uses that word witness in their day and time, they would have used a Greek word, martyr. It's where we get the word martyr. To be a witness for Jesus is to be a martyr. Not in the sense of you will inevitably experience death, in the sense of receiving death, of proclaiming the name of Jesus. That's not everybody's call. But if you are to be a witness of who Jesus is, you will point to the death of Jesus throughout your life. You will point to him in your own life. That's the witness you are. You will point to that martyrdom, that death, that killing of him on your behalf. And lastly, as we see in verse 22 of a costly grace, it is a receiving of resurrection. That is certainly the promise that he gives to each and every single Christian. Yes, once you have accepted that call to follow Christ and continue to take up your cross daily and you follow in passionate pursuit of him and upon death you will receive new life. Jesus promises that and he shows us that. Oh, it's not just a promise. Let me show you my body. You will receive one like this one day as well. A resurrected life because you have trusted in me. So the call to costly grace, if I could speak against health and wealth, Jesus, there's no costly part to the health and wealth, Jesus. It's just give money, receive blessing. There's no hard call to action and suffering involved. It's only health and wealth involved. Or the tolerant Jesus that some might accept. Unfortunately, this doesn't accept the will and want of Jesus. You take your own path and you don't follow after Jesus. That you do whatever you want regardless of the call of Jesus. It's two completely different paths there. His love, it clearly, of course, is seen in the cross, but you don't take up the cross. This is one of the things that Bonhoeffer was trying to say. Yeah, you can understand up here all day what the cross of Jesus is about, but are you call, how are you calling yourself to action, to live out, and to take up that cross daily. Or the good moral teacher, Jesus, what we see again and again throughout the New Testament is that Jesus is a suffering servant. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's much beyond that. He's a suffering servant. He is Lord over death and life. So he is both divine and human, and he takes up our sin to defeat it. Each radical, difficult cause for his people, the church. Or lastly, the ticket to heaven, Jesus. I know this is common in understanding how Jesus gives us life. And what I just want us to understand is that we give a better metaphor as opposed to say that Jesus gives us a ticket to eternal life. I'm not against it, but it flattens Jesus in saying that he's nothing more than giving out tickets to heaven. Because as these verses show us, it's so much more than that. He is one who puts a call before us and calls us to that type of action. 
It's not just a ticket to heaven, but how can you live out heaven on earth now as you await that eternal call where you meet your heavenly Father? How can we live out that call right here, right now, to take up one's cross daily and live out heaven on earth until the Father calls us? Because this is what was Bonhoeffer was so serious about, is that the costly call of grace, well, it's costly because it is a call to follow. But it is grace because it is a call to follow Christ Himself. So I have a couple of invitations for us this morning, church. First, count the cost. Thankfully, I had friends who uh, came beside me and helped me count the cost before I actually took that decision to follow Christ, no matter where He was calling me to, to actually count how difficult this, this following might be. But as our president says at our seminary, it is good to be in the perfect will of the Father, but it might not be the safest because you might experience rejection. You might even be killed. But it's a call to pick up that cross every single day. But what if we've already counted the cost and we have taken up our cross daily, that we are already bearers of the cross? If you've already decided to follow Jesus, we need to return to that cross every single day, as he reminds us, to deny ourselves, to take up that cross, and to live out that cross life. It is our banner that we march under. It's the badge that identifies us. But it is also the compass through which we see all of life, of how we can suffer and we can put ourselves aside so that others might flourish and others might see Christ in us. How can we be that this week, this church? Let's pray. Father, we're reminded of a very difficult call. And as you know my heart, Lord, is this was a very difficult sermon to preach because it is a reminder for me to pick up my cross daily and to follow your son. It is not an easy call but it is a call that must be heard and a call that at least must be counted. And so, Father, I pray that if you are working in anyone's hearts about this call to live out this gospel of this resurrected Christ and this crucified Christ, that you would continue that work in their hearts. And, Father, you would also... Uh, make them stop before they leave this church and to speak with me about what it means to follow after you, what it means to take up crosses, what it means to deny ourselves in our homes, to deny ourselves in our work, to deny ourselves in our businesses, to deny ourselves before our friends and family. How can we be cross bearers? Such a difficult call but it's a call that is worthy and good. So work through us this week. As difficult as the task might be, may our suffering produce fruit for your kingdom and your glory and your honor. Work in us through your spirit. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen.